Hello, thank you for tuning in. You are listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. For network or show information, visit byteradio.me or call 843-808-0777. And now, the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Good day, everyone. And thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Today, my special guest joining us from Canada is Michael Shao, and we will be talking about his new book, A Story of Karma, Finding Love and Truth in the Lost Valley of the Himalaya. In 2012, Michael and his wife, Chantel, undertook an expedition deep in the Himalaya of northern Nepal, into a remote valley that had been closed off to outsiders for decades. They led a team of artists, a photographer, musician, and painter, with the objective of capturing a moment in time through their unique lenses. Michael Shaw is a mountaineer, entrepreneur, storyteller who lives to explore remote places around the world and share the depth and beauty of human connection he discovers along the way. With early successes as an entrepreneur at age 15 and over 20 years of global financial investment experience, Michael brings his business acumen and altruistic heart to help lead and support local and international mentorship, fundraising, and educational initiatives. For more information, you can visit his website, which is www.michaelshow.com, and that's M-I-C-H-A-E-L. S-C-H-A-U-C-H. <laughs> okay, with that, I'd like to welcome Michael to the show. Good day, Michael. Thank you. Thank you very much, Robert, for having me on the show. It is my pleasure. Um, it, it's always fun to read um, a true life adventure story, <laughs> and, and that's exactly what, <laughs> what you have right there. <laughs> so, um, yeah. well, listen, I want to – there's so many areas I'd love to cover. I first want to start with, mm-hmm. would you mind sharing with the listeners um, a little bit about and, – and your wife's name is, is – am I pronouncing it correct, Chantal, or is it – Yep, that, that's, that's great, How, yeah, Chantal, yeah. Okay, okay. okay. Um, tell us, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and – and Chantel, and, and your background, you know, what kind of, what is it in your background that would even begin to lead you to the Himalaya? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, I, um, I I live on the west coast of Canada. Anyone who's been over to the west coast of Canada uh, will know the kind of the mountainous terrain, and we have a lot of nature here in terms of uh, forests and rivers, ocean, mountains, and um, and so I've always kind of grown up in that environment, and lived in that environment, and it, it's uh, it's just my passion to be in nature and, and to be in the mountains. And uh, and Chantal, likewise, she actually she was born in Switzerland, and uh, and so she, and she moved over here with her family when she was about 13. So she also kind of fell in love with the natural surroundings here, and that was part of when we initially started dating. That was part of the um, the connection that we had was uh, our, our our love for for getting outside into nature and hiking. And and Chantal, she wasn't really into uh, into heavy mountaineering at that time, but um, but after a few dates, <laughs> we uh, we started climbing <laughs> together, and uh, and she uh, she's still with me, so, <laughs> so that's a good sign. Um, yeah, so over the years, um, she got more and more into it, and uh, 
she had this objective to to climb Mount Kilimanjaro, uh, which is not a technical climb, but but it's a big mountain, and and so we thought we would do that together. You don't really need to convince me to climb anything, and um, and and we ended up. She wanted to do it for a cause bigger than herself, so we ended up um, doing it for this local charity to help uh, to help at-risk youth and, and and youth with disabilities to get outside. Uh, so we put a little team together and raised some money, and then we we ended up on the back of that. Uh, and that was in 2010. Uh, and on the back of that, we went down to <clears throat> to Mexico to climb Pico de Orizaba, which is actually the third highest mountain in North America. And again, we kind of turned it into a little uh, fundraising expedition and put a team together and raised some money again for that same charity. And so when we came back from that, uh, we we actually we sat down with this uh, this one gentleman who had just come back from Nepal. It was we we, were, we had similar friends and. And I had uh, I had wanted to go to Nepal since I was uh, you know 14, 15 years old. It was just something kind of deep within me, just pulling at my very core of, of my being. Um, but as life had it, I, I I wasn't able to get there until my early 30s. I in my teenage years, I didn't have the the funding, and and later on in life, you know, I was kind of working on my career, so I didn't have time to take a big chunk of time like that off to go there. Um, so it wasn't until, yeah, it was about, um, 30, 32 that I finally was able to get there. And, and so when Chantal and I sat down with that friend, he, he told us about this little place, um, called the Lost Valley, uh, the Lost Valley of Narfu. And, and this valley had been closed off, um, to the outside world for generations. And it had just been opened up to, um, to, 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 to the outside world a few years before that. So, uh, when he was showing me these pictures, I um, I thought, you know, I thought to myself, this is this is the place that uh, that we need to go to, and and um, and yeah. So Chantal and I, we decided to put a little team together of artists. We had a photographer and a nature artist and a musician, and we thought because because one of the things we understood was that now that the valley had opened, it was going to be experiencing some unprecedented change. So we thought, well, let's go in there um, with our unique lenses and observe and learn from the people and, and also just capture a moment in time before it changes too much. And, um, and as a mountaineering fanatic, I, I came across this one picture with the, it, it, as we were sitting down there, and I, I got to this picture, and, and it was this picture of this, this pyramid mountain, uh, this white sort of gleaming pyramid mountain coming out of the, the earth. And I, uh, that for me was it. I, I just... I fell in love with that mountain, and I figured if there's one thing I have to do is, is to go over there and uh, and try and climb it. And that was sort of, you know, the inception of, of what brought us there. Yeah, absolutely. Now, and I, I think it's I find it fascinating that you know at age 15 you were drawn to Nepal. I mean. I, I think it's really pretty, but I wouldn't have been drawn there, you know. But I think, you know, that's, you know, I think, you know, I think you mentioned in, in your book, you talk about how, you know, there are these things that are a draw that we just can't explain, that we sometimes just have to follow it, whatever that is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, it's funny because I think all of us maybe have a place like that where we, we feel this connection at a very soul level and, um and perhaps some of us listen to that calling, uh, perhaps some of us don't. But um, but for some reason, yeah, I felt like um, I, I didn't understand it at that time, um, but I just felt that very soul-level um, connection to the Himalaya. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's it's wonderful. You know, and 
now, after this long period, this period of time, um, it has become such a, a major uh, transformative experience for you. So, I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's kind of like it was there to be unlocked, you know, and, and you, you went through and did that. Um, so, so now let's talk about the, the actual trip there. Um, was it, mm-hmm. um, first of all, you know, was Chantal on board, you know, with that? And, and uh, <laughs> would it take some convincing to do? Because, you know, maybe that was a little bit, I understand, you know, that the, the terrain is a, a little bit more maybe than what you had done previously. Yeah, yeah. Well, Chantal, she's uh, she's very strong. Um, she does suffer from, or she has suffered from some migraine attacks over the years, and uh, that's a kind of a different story. But she she's identified it now. At the time, she didn't really understand it as much, but she's identified it now as um, it, it, at the very core of it. It's actually anxiety and stress dri- stress driven from when she was. Uh, from when she was a child, she used to be a, a classical violinist, um, like a performer, and and uh, and I think a lot of that gave her a lot of performance anxiety over the years when she was a youth, and so um, so I think that kind of manifested into these tension and migraine, um, uh, you know, headaches for her, but she didn't understand that at the time. So one of the things that that she was a little concerned about was spending that amount of time in these high altitude um, places where once you're in there, you know, it's not like you can easily get out, right? You have to either walk yourself out or um, right. or somehow, you know, <laughs> struggle through it. But, uh, really but she actually, yeah. Train, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So um, so I think it was day four of the trek when we were in the Himalaya there that um, that she was actually hit with one of these um, these migraine attacks. And I remember it was one of the worst ones I had seen. I had never suffered from... For migraines before, but um, but anyone who's who's had a migraine will know that you can't really move. Almost, you know, you, for Chantal, her entire neck, her back, kind of muscles seized up. Um, you know, she didn't want to see any light. Sound was 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 um, you know very torturous. So um, so we were in the middle of the mountains in the Lost Valley when it when it hit, and um, and I thought, oh my goodness, like what are we going to do here? Because um, she was on the verge of turning around. And I was, you know, we had our team there. I didn't talk with any of the team members about it, but I was thinking to myself, you know, what's going to happen? Are we going to have to divide our team? Um, I would go back with Chantal. I wouldn't want her to go back on her, by herself. And, um, you know, are we going to have to carve up the resources? And, and at the same time, I was kind of seeing the beginning, uh, of like the entry to this valley that, um, that I'd wanted to go into for my entire life. And, and, um, and, and my, my very uh, body was kind of almost vibrating <laughs> to, with the energy wow. of the place and the people. And, uh, and so I, it was a little bit, um, yeah, it was a little bit uh, <laughs> of, a, of a difficult situation because, uh, you know, I, of course I wanted to go forward and, and my dream was there. But at the same time, you know, Chantal was, right. was, um, was suffering quite a bit as well. So, so I, in the end, we decided to push forward um, to this little settlement where we could spend two days. And I figured, okay, well, I'll give it the two days there, and hopefully Chantal will, will be well enough uh, to recover within that time frame. And unfortunately, she, she did, and then we were able to move on to this little village called Fu, which is the most remote outpost village in the entire valley. Wow. Um, so now, for the... The Pyramid Mountain, um, 
mm. I believe um, in the book you said that it um, it wasn't really that easy to find. I mean, that it wasn't one of these things that um, uh, that, that you had to kind of go an extra effort in order to find it. Yeah, yeah. No, it was. Um, I, I I didn't know exactly. I didn't even know if it had a name, um, let alone had it been climbed. And and I knew kind of that it was in that valley, but I didn't know exactly where. And so I had two uh, two two really skilled Sherpa guides with me, and together, once we got to this village of Fu. And by the way, the village of Fu, it was like uh, a place out of a fairy tale. Um, it was the way that the houses were were carved up, the rock sides. It felt like we were kind of walking back into a 17 into the 17th century that we were kind of time travelers walking back in time and uh, again the way that the people there were living there they the, they were living the same way that they had been living for the last 800 years and uh, you know the richness of the culture and uh, and the genuine sort of connection that they had with their uh with their with their culture and their way of being uh, it was absolutely beautiful and, uh, and and because at that time, as I said, it was just it was just opened up. Uh, they weren't used to seeing a lot of um, a lot of foreigners or a lot of people from the outside world coming in. And so um, so just being there, I, I felt like this very strong presence, uh, this very strong connection uh, to that culture. Um, and at the same time, I was equally excited to 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 kind of venture out and and find this mountain. And so we we spent two days. Uh, of reconnaissance, me and, and my two companions there, and some of these valleys. I mean, just out of this world. We would go up these um, kind of these these vast um, open Himalayan uh, valleys. Fourteen. Imagine we're at like between fourteen and sixteen thousand feet in elevation, and um, you know you'd have these canyons filled with glaciated ice, um, herds of baral, which are these mountain sheep. Uh, Himalayan mountain sheep, you know, we'd see hundreds of them just coming down the hillside as though they were they were almost part of the earth. Uh, we came into contact with snow leopard prints and, and things like that. So it was a very magical, uh, you know, feeling being out there. And I, I should mention that the entire valley is considered uh, what the Tibetans call a bayul, a bayul meaning sacred valley. And what that means, I mean, the, the Dalai Lama himself has said that it's a place where where the spiritual and physical realms coalesce more closely together. So we could definitely feel that presence. I remember walking through the gates to get to that particular part of the valley, and it was almost as though uh, everything shifted. It was almost as though we walked into this orb. Um, colors shifted. Um, you know, the feeling, sensations uh, just were different. And actually, Chantal had said to me, um, but prior to entering that part of the valley, she had experienced one of the lowest lows of her life when she was suffering with those migraines. And then, you know, and then on the back of that, she had, she was now experiencing one of the highest highs of her life, uh, just being in there. Um, she actually felt like th that Valley was, was healing her in some, in some way. So, um, yeah, so all of this was going on and we, we spent these two days going out there trying to find the mountain and, and we found it and it was the most, um, yeah, it was the most glorious thing I can ever, <laughs> I can ever imagine. It, just imagine this this gleaming white pyramid coming out of the stony earth um, against the deep, you know, blue sky like that. And and but the thing is, is that the closer we got to the mountain, the more everything started falling apart for me. Um, you know, we were caught in a snowstorm at seventeen thousand feet. Uh, I had this mule that was carrying my climbing gear, and it ran off, and it was two days behind us. 
And so all of these things were kind of unraveling. And uh, it's kind of forced me to hunker down in this little, um, this little village of Fu. And I was going through this a bit of an identity crisis because since I was a teenager, it was my dream to, to come in, into the Himalayan and climb a mountain like that. And, uh, and at the same time, I couldn't understand why, why were my dreams being crushed on the very doorsteps of, of uh, you know, of, of the mountain here. And so, um, yeah, so I was going through this kind of Jekyll and Hyde like conversation with myself over several days. And unfortunately, Chantal and my team members um, were very supportive in, in kind of listening to me go through this. Um, but, um, but what it was also doing was it was allowing me to, to connect more with the locals. And, and, and we have dinners together in their homes. If you imagine their, their stone homes, um, not that big, maybe the size of uh, a typical, I don't know, a typical North American bedroom uh, with a little dung-fueled stove in the middle and oftentimes you'd have, you know, 15, 20 people in one of these homes preparing the dinners together and, and we'd eat together. And, and so that was, that was opening my mind to, to these new ways of thinking and being and um, just really appreciating these experiences. Um, and I met this, uh, this one young man by the name of Sanam Dorje. And Sanam Dorje, he had left Fu when he was 14 years old uh, to go get uh, an education down in India. And he hadn't been back. He hadn't seen his parents uh, or seen his village in seven years. And he happened to come back exactly at that time. Our paths happened to cross exactly at that moment. And so Sanam Dorje and I, we ended up becoming friends. We'd go on these walks together every day um, and we'd talk. He'd share with me about his village and his people and the culture. And, and we'd talk about Tibetan Buddhism. And, um, and, and one day we went up to this, this hilltop monastery uh, overlooking the valley and we had this very profound conversation up there about about what it means to 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 kind of tap into our karma of our life he talked about karma as being um you know to live is to is to is to live our karma is to live our suffering in in such a way and um and so they embraced that in tibetan buddhism they embraced the suffering because that's their karma and so it got me thinking about um you know why is it that I'm 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 suffering so much about this mountain, which really in the grand, in the grand scheme of things doesn't really matter that much, um, and it got me thinking about you know these questions like why why am I here in in the Himalaya? What am I what am I here to do? And I, I realized that you know I didn't know why I was being guided away from the mountain. It was almost like everything everything inside of me was still wanting to push forward towards it, but everything outside of me was kind of guiding me in this different, in this different direction, and I didn't know where. Um, but I thought, you know what, I, I, just have to, I just have to choose to trust in this unfolding of events, and, um, and that's what I can do right now. Yeah, boy, I mean, it's, you know, when you get um, to the point where you, ha- you know, those, I mean, when you've thought about it, Oh, hello, Robert. I think I've lost you. Are you still there? Hello?
Hello, Robert. Yeah, you know, when when it comes time to, you know, questioning, you know, kind of why you're there, especially if since you had it for such a long period, um, it, it just seems that um, karma um, or, or if we're drawn to be doing something in this particular lifetime that we're going to do it. And, and um, I think a lot of times, you know, that questioning um, is crucial. I mean, it's, do you feel that that, that period was um, – that changed your, I don't want to say worldview, but a, but a kind of a shift in perspective from that point forward? I think so. Yeah, I think so. Because um, I think when we have such a, um, you know, such a part of us, you know, for example, the mountain was such a part of my identity for so long. And, and so it kind of fused itself into, into who I am in terms of, you know, I felt like I had to be in the Himalayan climb. Um, and particularly this, this dream mountain here that I had found. And, um, and so when something like that, in a way, gets, gets severed, um, it, it, perhaps it leaves a bit of a, an identity gap, um, you know, not knowing, mm-hmm. right? And, and at the same time, because we're in this very special place in this Bayul, this sacred valley, I definitely felt a stronger presence to, to something much deeper and something that I hadn't felt before. Um, and almost like this synchronicity of events that was that, that continued to unfold, um, just strange connections with people, strange feelings, things that people would say. Um, you know, for example, when, one of the walks that I was that I was with with Sanam Dorje, this one older woman, she she was looking at me and, and she she started talking in, in their dialect, and I, I couldn't understand what she was saying, of course. But um, but so, so I asked Sanam, I said, what is what is she saying? And Sanam said, well, she's saying that. Um, that in your previous life you were one of us. Um, he said you were actually my grandfather is what she was saying. And I, I just thought, wow, like that just took me totally off guard. Um, yeah, it, it felt like, um, I, I can't quite put it into words, but it felt like there was this sequence of events that was unfolding and almost like somebody was opening doorways. And, um, mm-hmm. and, and that, you know, that I, I kind of, all, what I had to do was to, to, I was being called to walk through those, those doorways. Yeah. And, you know, and I, when, when I started reading the whole idea of you, you know, you having a past life there, I mean, that was like one of the first things, you know, that was like, okay, this, you know, this makes sense, you know, and this is kind of one of those connections, you know, so had you thought of a past life there? Is that something that was in your you know, you're kind of you're in the back of your mind, or maybe even in the forefront of your mind as a possibility. Uh, it hadn't it hadn't occurred to me at that time. Um, huh. I mean, perhaps okay. I felt it on on a deeper level that I, I couldn't really understand right. in my in my kind of um, you know conscious mind. But um, but it, it sort of the pieces started coming together subsequent uh, to that. But at the time, I was I was kind of in this sort of confused state and. And uh, actually, the, the Tibetans have this word. I don't know if you've heard of this word called bardo, the bardo. And, uh, and what they mean by it, it, it translates as a place of transition. Um, you know, the Tibetans, they, in Buddhism, they, you know, how they believe in reincarnation um, from lifetime to lifetime. But they also, when they talk about reincarnation, they also refer to it as to reincarnate multiple times in one lifetime. So... You know, in, in a single mm. lifetime, you can think about how we how we can actually reincarnate. We become different different a different person over time, right? 
Um, and the bardo is the place where we enter, where we get to choose, okay, what aspect of, of, of my past do I want to bring forward with me um, into this next life, into this next incarnation, and what aspects no longer serve me? What do I want to leave behind? So I think, you know, walking away from the mountain and going, uh, you know, coming away from that, um, I was actually in that, I think I was in that bardo state where part of me, part of me had died, so to speak, mm-hmm. up there. Mm-hmm. Um, but part of me was also being reborn. So I was going through that, that, that transition where I didn't know, I, didn't, I couldn't consciously understand what was happening, but I knew that there was some sort of deep level of transformation that was happening. Um, and so that kind of called me into this other, into this other area, to this other little village called Nar. Uh, there's two villages, two main villages in this whole valley, and one of them was Fu, and the other one was Nar. And, and Nar, by the way, I wouldn't have visited had I climbed the mountain because I wouldn't have had time. So, but because I didn't, because I, you know, walked away from that, we thought, okay, we've got a couple extra days now. Why don't we, um, why don't we, we spend a few days in, in this little place called Nar and see what's there? And um, yeah, and so we get there and discovered that there's this. Um, this little stone school. Um, and, and prior to being there, we had seen, we had seen a lot of kids, but um, there were no schools. There, was, there were no, basically, there was no education for the kids beyond their village education, mm-hmm. right? Right. So, mm-hmm. and what I, what I learned from Sanam Dorje uh, was that, you know, a lot of kids, by the time they were six or seven years old, they would have to start working in the fields. It's very hard labor. Um, I learned that, um, that you know the girls at that time, they by the time they were 15, 16 years old, um, they'd have to start getting married, having children of their own, uh, starting their own families, and uh, infant mortality was high. Malnut- kids died of malnutrition or, or easily curable diseases, things like that. So it was a very tough life up there, and so I learned about all these things as as we were going, um, and, and I also learned from Sanam Dorje about the importance of education. He said that opens up choice for the kids and, and the parents, how they actually have this, this saying up there, which I learned, which is um, they'd rather their kids have a pencil in the hand versus a strap around the forehead. You know, if you imagine how the Nepalese traditionally they carry the, the heavy loads, it's, um, it's not like a backpack that we would carry here, but like a strap around the forehead. And, uh, and I tried carrying that. Uh, this basket like that over there, and it's extremely difficult. But um, but anyway, yeah, so I learned about all this stuff. So when we get to Narm, and I learned that there was this little stone school, I thought, you know, we we got to go check this out. Um, we have to see. Maybe there's some some hope, you know, for these kids here in Nar and, 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 you know, in terms of getting more education beyond what they would learn in the village. And uh, so so we get there, and um, and there's this courtyard, um, the kids had pulled the benches out into the courtyard because there's no electricity in these places. There's no toilets even there's, um, at that time. So they had pulled their benches out to be in the light and the warmth of the sun. And the kids were there um, ranging in age from about three to seven years old. And at the front of the class was this little girl, a little seven-year-old girl, um, teaching English numbers to, to the group there. And... And I just thought, well, this is um, this is interesting. What's happening here? 
Um, and English script differs from Nepali script. And so why is she, why is there this little seven-year-old girl teaching English numbers? And, and the kids were, you know, I mean, imagine them, they were sitting there on, with their clothes uh, in tatters, um, uh, you know, kind of sunburnt cheeks to the point where they have got blisters. Uh, some of them is not dripping down their upper lips and these magnificent 7,000-meter peaks behind them. Um, and there they were <laughs> learning these English numbers. And so, um, so anyway, yeah, we found the teacher. He was kind of looming in the back, and he had explained to us how he actually came from a totally different area of Nepal. He was about two weeks away from his village and his family. Um, so he told us that he actually felt like he had been banished to the end of the earth and, and didn't really have any desire to, to be teaching there. Um, and so, so the kids were there, and they caught sight of, um, you know, we had this musician with us, uh, Michael, who had his guitar slung over his shoulder, and the kids had never seen a guitar, uh, you know, let alone heard one. And so they kind of, you know, you could tell that they were very interested in it. So Michael, you know, he's a bit of an entertainer, and he went up to the, um, the front of the class. We asked the teacher, you know, if it was okay. And he said, yeah, yeah, you know, teach them some music. Um, and so he started teaching on this, <laughs> this jazzed-up rendition of Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. Um, and the kids just got right into it and started singing along with him and, and started, you know, dancing to the rhythm. Um, it was just a very beautiful scene. And then, and then the, I guess the teacher, he got a little bit motivated and he brought out this traditional Nepali drum and he starts playing mm. this drum. He wanted the kids to dance in front of us one at a time. And he started with, um, this little girl, Karma. Well, I didn't know her name was Karma, but this little girl who had been teaching, uh, the English numbers, he said to her, you know, um, dance in front of these people now. Um, and you could see her, she was just sort of starting to crumble from the inside. She looked like she was petrified in the corner there, um, almost internally starting to cry. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and so Chantal, <clears throat> Chantal couldn't really take it. I think it, maybe it was something to do with her, you know, the performance anxiety she had, oh, had yeah. when she was around that age. Um, so she just marched right up there um, next to Karma and started doing her best impression of this traditional Nepali dance. And she doesn't know how to do a traditional <laughs> Nepali dance, but, but she was trying to improvise the moves. And, and, and the little girl right. immediately forgot about everybody watching and just focused, their, their eyes were focused on each other. And the two of them were just dancing almost like these two little spirits um, in their own world. Mm. And it almost felt like time itself had, had ceased to move. Um, and, and so um, so after that, when they got out of school, they found where we were staying. And this little girl, um, she, she, came, she just came bolting in, just running in, um, and just leaped into Chantal's arms. Um, the biggest heart-to-heart, Chantal told me afterwards, it was the biggest heart-to-heart hug um, she had ever received mm. from a child. And then, and then this little girl, she turned to me and she just leaped into my arms. And I'll never forget it, that moment where I just, I felt like the force of her. I mean, not, not the physical force, but like the force of love just rushing right. at me. Um, and it actually was in that moment where I, I realized this is the reason I'm not climbing the mountain. And um, yeah, we felt this very strange. I mean, we had seen hundreds of kids leading up to that point, but for some reason, I felt this very strong sort of karmic connection with this little girl. Uh, And I think that all three of us could kind of feel it as though we had uncovered some sort of deeper karmic thread, you know, between us. And, Mm -hmm. um, and so we, we asked the girl, you know, what's your name? We could speak some Nepali. And, um, and she said, uh, her name's Karma. Um, We asked her how old she is. She said seven. 
And um, and then some of her friends rushed in, and they were used to seeing or seeing some truckers coming in now. So they they were asking us for chocolate and candy, and and <laughs> when they found out we didn't have any, um, they kind of backed off. And then and then Karma came back, and she pulled out from her from her little sweater pocket this this um, laminate card with English words on it, and she kind of just motioned, you know, to Chantal if she if Chantal could teach her these English words. And uh, and that's when Chantal and I we kind of looked at each other. We thought, wow, this, this little girl. I mean, materially, they have very little up there in the mountains. A very hard way, very hard. It's it's full on survival. Um, she doesn't want any chocolate. She doesn't want anything material. All she wants is to learn. And so that's when Chantal and I we started asking these questions, like, what, you know, what happens to, what what happens to a girl like this up here who who doesn't necessarily have access to the education beyond the village and. And we knew what we had learned from Sanan Dorje and about the, the, the children up there and how difficult it was and the hard labor and, um, and you know, girls getting mar- married when they're young. And, you know, so we, we, we thought, well, let's, let's meet with her family and, um, and see what her, her parents have planned for her. Um, so we were able to meet in, in their little home. Um, their father was, was out herding yaks. He was two days away. And their mother was still working in the field. She, I think she had been working in the fields for probably 12 hours. She was still out that evening when we got there. And, but when we got there, um, you know, Karma, she brought us in by the hand, and, and she put out these little mats for us to sit on around the stove, and, and she got the fire going, and she got the, the tea, you know, the water going for the tea, um, and all this while taking care of her three-year-old, three-year-old sister, Pemba. Um, and you imagine, like a seven-year-old, <laughs> you know, doing all that. Wow. I, I just thought, well, this would not happen in, in North America. I don't think. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> no. And then, and then her mom finally came home, and just very, very beautiful, very graceful woman. I mean, very hard, like very weathered from the elements. Right. And, and mm-hmm. uh, you could tell that she had worked, you know, a lot over the years in the fields. But, um, but just a very graceful woman. She immediately she started preparing uh, butter tea for us and, um, and these little yak milk crackers and, and just very hospitable. Again, probably the harshest environment I've ever been in, but some of the most hospitable um, people I've ever met. And so we started having this kind of conversation through broken translation, um, you know, because one of our, our Sherpa guides was, was there as well, helping along. And, um, and we, learned that, um, <clears throat> we learned that education for them is the biggest thing that they could ever hope for and ask for for their girls and uh and there were six girls in the family um karma and her little sister pemba were the youngest two and and they didn't have a plan for those for for them um so we asked karma we said okay is education something that you would like and, and she said yes very much so she would very much like to learn and um and so we said to the parents okay we can work with you to help find a suitable school for karma. And, uh, and we said, well, as long as karma would like to study, we can work together to help make that happen. And um, yeah. And then, and then we left <laughs> and, and we didn't know um, what was going to happen. We didn't know the options. We knew enough to know that the school had to be a safe boarding school and that it had to be something that was culturally aligned with um with uh, with the, you know with their culture up there because it's very different in the mountains right. than it is in the in the urban centers in the urban centers um, in most of Nepal is actually Hindu and it operates on the caste system so mm. the people in the mountains they're actually considered indigenous um, 
And so if karma was placed into any school, government school, um, you know, there would be risk of being usually, um, you know, racially discriminated against. So we, we knew that it had to be um, somewhere culturally aligned with their, and also to help foster those Tibetan Buddhist roots as well, the Dharma. So um, anyway, we got back to Kathmandu, couldn't find anything. Um, we got back to Canada, kept searching for, for over a month we were looking and uh, almost losing hope. And then, um, and then one day up pops this, um, this school called the SMD Sri Mangaldip Boarding School uh, for Himalayan children. And on the front page, it had pictures of the kids like we saw in the villages and uh, kids like Karma and, and her friends. And, and, um, and, and it said their education for the lost children of the Himalaya. So the, the school was started with, we thought, we thought, okay, who, is, who started this school? And the school was started by this Tibetan Lama who had fled Tibet in the 50s and, um, and started the school specifically for these kids in that upper Himalayan belt uh, that are so far out there that they just got forgotten about. They just they fall through the cracks, right? So, um, so we started this. So we thought, okay, this is, this is perfect. And we wrote to the school at once. And uh, about a week went by. The school director, she wrote back. And she said, you know, thank you for sharing. Um, sounds wonderful. Uh, but I have to tell you that we have, um, we have 500 kids at the school. We're busting at the seams. We've got 400 kids on the wait list. Um, we've got kids being dropped off on the stairs that we need to, to turn away. And because of all this, there's only one person who can admit kids into the school, and that is this 80-plus-year-old uh, founder, this Tibetan Lama. And uh, I just felt like um, – I remember reading her email. I felt like I was being kind of dropped down this, this black hole. Like, why um, – mm-hmm. Yeah, why why are so many barriers being stacked against this one little girl who all she wants is to is to learn? Um and so but then Chantel had, had included our address in the email signature and the school director said, Oh, but I see that you're in um in Vancouver in Canada on the west coast there. You may be interested to know that that this Tibetan Lamba Lama happens to be at his monastery right now in this place called Richmond. Um, which was a 25-minute drive from our home. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> what a coincidence. I, 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 yeah, yeah. Again, like one of those synchronicities. And, yeah. and I just, I, I, I remember looking at Chantal like, what? <laughs> a whole journey just brought us right back to where we started. And, and we, um, yeah, so we were able to meet with him. He wasn't seeing anybody because he was recovering from an illness, but he he was able to see us and, and um and kind of explained to him the, the story there. And, and then he said, and this was back in 2012, and he said, okay, next year in 2013, karma can be admitted into the school. And so every year, every eight to ten months, we've been going back to, to Nepal and going back to the SMD school. And we were there for karma's first day of classes, and, and then Pemba got into the school as well. And, and so we've been, um, yeah, over, the, over the, the, the last eight years, we've been kind of um, – you know, building our, our these familial threads, these familial connections, building our family together, um, and uh, just having some of the most beautiful experiences with Karma and Pemba and their family, and um, yeah, it's been you know the most fulfilling and meaningful uh, experiences of my life. And uh, I never thought that um, you know not climbing the mountain <laughs> would, to, to, would be so to, profound. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, thought, you thought climbing it was going to be profound, 
Well, wow, not climbing was even bigger. <laughs> wow. Well, um, now, um, Karma and Pemba came back to Canada for a short time. So tell us a little bit about um, how that came about. I understand it wasn't an easy task. Like it seems like, you know, you've had um, kind of resistance in many different ways, and, and that was part of it as well, correct? Yeah, yeah. So it, it was interesting because, um, I mean, if I go back to that day in the village when we met, um, one of the things that was really on my mind was that I would just like to help give this little girl um, more choice in, in in life, right? Mm-hmm. If she if she wants to um, if she wants to be in the village, that's totally fine. But it should be on her own terms, right? I, I you know I'd like her to learn what is what is life like in Kathmandu, what is life like outside of Nepal. Um, just learn more about the world and and uh, and how different places in the world are. So um, so one of the things that Chantal and I we took the girls back to their village in 2017 because they hadn't seen their, their village or family in a couple of years um, because they were at the boarding school in Kathmandu. And so, so we thought, okay, let's go back to their village and, uh, and have a conversation about their future. And, and we, you know, the parents, they kind of came up with this idea or we kind of came up with this idea together. What if the girls, um, you know, had this cultural exchange uh, to North America and, and just kind of learned again, you know, what, what this part of the world is like. Um, and so we thought, okay, well, we can't guarantee anything, but we'll see if we can make that happen. Um, it was, it took a small miracle to get them student visas to be able to leave Nepal. Um, that, that in itself is a whole other story. Um, and then when we were ready to leave Nepal, um, the, <laughs> it turned out that immigration exactly within that sort of one to two week window they happened to be just, just at that time cracking down on all the illegal activities that were happening at the, at the airport. And, um, and, and child trafficking is a huge problem for Nepal. Um, so they were cracking down heavily on that, which, which is a good thing, of course. But, um, but it, 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 they put this kind of blanket statement on that no child could leave the country um, without their parents. And, and it was impossible for, for, for Carmen Pemba's parents to, to get visas for, uh, for North America uh, they would have never been granted them. Um, and and so, I mean, even to get the visas, the student visas for Carmen Pemba took, as I said, a small miracle and somebody intervening from the high up in the Canadian government. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I, I just thought, wow, okay, here we are again, um, you know, against these barriers. But there, every time we kind of came up a barrier, uh, up against a barrier, there was almost like there was almost like a little doorway that opened. <laughs> um, it was like, okay, well, you're getting shut down here, but, oh, there's this, this little path over here that you can take. And so it never felt forced, um, if you know what I mean. Like, you oh, know, I do. It, it felt like, yeah, it felt like the flow of events wanted us to move in that direction, but it wasn't easy, but it was still moving in that direction. And so eventually we were able to get them, um, safe passage to leave the country, and, and we had uh, yeah they were here in Canada for uh, for about a year at the at the Waldorf School here, and um, I mean all of our minds just opened tremendously. You know, Chantal and I we became parents <laughs> overnight, and um, and that wasn't the plan. I mean, they, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I mean I, you know that was a whole learning experience. You know, our minds expanded greatly, their minds expanded greatly from being here, and just seeing. 
you know, it was so beautiful how, how they interacted with, um, with the environment here. I mean, again, just having that, that deep sense of mindfulness and presence. For example, you know, Karma, she enjoys teaching. She was, they brought her, um, the teachers brought her into the kindergarten class uh, sometimes to help the, the teach the younger kids. And, and I remember the kindergarten teacher saying just by her being in the class, the kids, um, just everybody just calmed down. Like the, almost energetically, everything mm-hmm. just sort of, you know, became much more mindful. Um, you know, I remember one day um, we were rushing around the house and I, I was late for something. <laughs> we were late for an activity or something. And I said, you know, girls, we got to get our jackets and our shoes on. And, and Pemba, <laughs> you know, little Pemba, 10 years old, she grabbed my arm and she said, Mike, she said, if, if we behaved like this in our village, everybody would think that we are sick. <laughs> I, thought, I, thought, I thought, wow, okay, you know wow. what, right, let's everybody just breathe and we'll just slow down. There's, there's no sense in having to get into this mental panic here. Um, so, yeah, just little things like that. And, you know, they're, the first time they saw the ocean, I mean, they just couldn't believe I mean, they grew up in this vertical landlocked terrain and um, and being right. able to see the ocean stretching on all the way to Asia uh, the, the, the Pacific Ocean. I mean, they just they couldn't believe it, and so things like I mean, it was just so beautiful seeing, um, yeah, just seeing their minds expand, and, and you know, having our minds expand, and um, and uh, yeah, and then now they're back in the village because of COVID. The schools had all the schools in Kathmandu have had to close for now, but they're back in their village, uh, um, and we've been able to you know Skype call every few days, and 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 they're just. Again, they're having a beautiful moments over there, being able to see now their village um, after having seen the lens from Kathmandu and from you know, over here, and then now taking that back to to the village and, and asking the questions, you know, why are things the way they are in the different parts of the world? And and uh, I remember um, actually the other day Pemba sent me this little this little homework assignment. Uh, she's 12 now. And she, actually her teacher sent me the homework assignment because he was so impressed with it. And the, the assignment was um, – uh, what I learned during lockdown and Pemba said what she learned during lockdown was how much her parents love her because she said that now that she's been back in the village again, um, she's learned how hard it is to survive up there. She didn't quite understand that before because she was too young when she went to SMU mm. school in Kathmandu, but now being back, she's had to work in the fields again and see how hard her parents are working and she said she's learned how to take care of the animals and learned how to take care of her siblings and, and cook for the family. And, and she understands how hard it is to survive. And, and, um, and, and she's learned that how much her parents love her because her parents don't want her to have the same life like they have. And that's why they, they wanted her to have this opportunity for education. So I, I just thought uh, it just kind of left me speechless. Um, you know, so touching yeah. reading that and, and just, uh, like, you know, that a 12-year-old could come into that level of, um, of awareness. Awareness. Yeah, exactly. That is, that is, that is amazing. Now, it, there was one, and I'm thinking it was karma, there was a, a comment at one time you were, you were talking about something, I think maybe it was about going back, um, but talked about being, being, even though she was young, she had an old mind. You know, and mm. I can't remember the exact, <laughs> but, but that one just, that one just, stuck out to me that it seems <laughs> that um you know that that is you know i mean you know a lot of times we you know talk about you know kids having you know old being old souls kind of you know, having that old wisdom kind of an, an innate wisdom 
kind of thing far beyond their age, you know, and, and it, we see that, you know, in, you know, every now and then show up. And um, I just thought that it was amazing. And, you know, the fact that, you know, that nature connection, I, I just wondered if, you know, there, you know, the idea, you know, that, that connection with nature and kind of in, in the Buddhist um, framework, you know, if that um, lent itself to um, having that, you know, um, old mind, I guess, for for lack of a better uh, yeah. term. I, I think that's uh, I think that's a very very profound point, and I think you're right because you know here in, in the West or in, in sort of the modern world or North America, we've you know we've tried to create a more comfortable life. Like we almost want to take away. Um, being in, in, in the natural environment in a way, right? We create our lives um, to be as comfortable as possible and and as sort of, you know, easy as possible with all our gadgets and electronic things. And, and so I think you're right. Like, I think it takes us away from that higher level of sensitivity to our natural environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I remember one um, one scene, this was a few years ago, back in 20, uh, 2015, after the earthquakes in Nepal, thousands of people killed and and I, we went over there um, with the girls, and, and their father came down, and we were having we went we visited this one uh, this one museum, and the museum had these dioramas of um, of kind of village life, and I remember her their father he started taking these pictures of this one scene of it almost looked like you know their their home right, and he was taking these pictures with his flip phone, and and I I asked him I said what you know oh what what is it uh, there and he t- he turned to me and he said. He said, my home. Um, and I just, it, it kind of struck me because I thought, wow, like, what would it be like for us to see our way of life, our home, in a museum, like enshrined in a museum as a, perhaps a way of, of disappearing culture, right? Um, and, and it kind of, kind of struck me as, as though is that way of life, the way that's kind of cultivated this, these so semi-nomadic people, is it, is it disappearing? Is it um you know, is it going to be replaced with sort of the modern world in time here as the modern world keeps encroaching into every part of the world? Um, and then almost simultaneously, I remember the girls, they walked up to this this uh, this gompa, this Tibetan Buddhist shrine, um, shrine hall, and without prompting or anything, they started uttering this mantra of uh, Namo Buddhaya, Namo Sangaya, or Namo uh, Dharmaya, Namo Sangaya. And... Um, and, and what that mantra translates into is um, homage to my higher self, um, mm. homage to the, the teachings, the wisdom, what's come before, and homage to the interconnectedness of all things, uh, to my community, my surroundings. And, um, and I just thought, wow, like that level of profound mindfulness doesn't exist as readily over here. So, no. Um, no, no. I mean, can you imagine living, making choices uh, with that level of mindfulness, wow. right? Yeah. Is, is, my, is my action in honor of my higher self, is my action in honor of my community, and is my action in honor of the teachings that came before? Like, I mean, you know, so I, I think there's, there's pluses and minuses to both, but, you know, one of the things that their father mm. said to me, was that uh, he never, he wants, there are actually two things. One was that he never wants them to forget their dharma. He never wants them to forget where they're from. And at the same time, 
um, he wants them to to be with Chantal and me because he feels like they can go further in life, um, you know, under our, our care, so to speak. So so we've mm-hmm. been co-parenting, and I think trying to – all of us are – all the parents – like their parents and Chantal and I were trying to work together to give these girls, you know, almost the best of both yeah. worlds, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um making sure that they can make choices in the modern world as the modern world continues to encroach everywhere um, and at the same time not lose touch with their values and who they are culturally, um, you know, their village uh, wisdom. Yeah, boy, you know, um, that level of awareness is, I mean, it's just, you just don't see it very often, you know, and, and especially the young, to me, I mean, if the, the younger generation were to, and, you know, and I'm not going to kind of broad, brush stroke it. You know, there are those youth that are seem to have that level of awareness, though it may not be framed in the same way as, you know, as what they have. But, um, but to me, it, it's, um, the world would just be so much better. It's so much a better place if we recognize and did honor, you know, you know, in her life. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. boy, I think so. Yeah. 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 So no, I think you're right. You, you, um, yeah. So, what do you hope that the readers are going to take away from from reading um, your book? Yeah. So, I I wrote the book uh, Story of Karma. I mean, one of the things is over the years, Chantal and I, we've kind of shared different parts of the story, and no matter who was sitting on the other side of the table, you know, different walks of life. Um, people just seem to have this very deep yearning to learn more and, and this emotional connection with the story. So, so I thought, okay, why not share this in the, through, through a book? And um, I hope readers, you know, they'll, they'll kind of connect through the pages with that same or with a similar level of, um, of human connection and love and joy that, um, that I've been able to find through these, through this journey. And, um, and, and yeah, and perhaps um, you know, yeah, understand that there's different ways of life out yeah. there. Life in the Himalaya, the kids, um, you know, the importance of of education to them, and um, and at the same time, yeah, if if we do feel these sort of deep human connections, these familial uh, karmic threads, um, to honor that, to honor that yeah. through our actions. Yeah. yeah, very much. I mean, just the. First of all, the adventure. <laughs> you know, again, that's mm. it's a great adventure story. But you know, but also you know the you know the the struggle, the the, the, the you know the desire to um, uh, achieve or aspire to something, uh, to have it switched out on you, you know, to persevere. Um, I mean, it's just you know, it's got all of the elements of. Know, of a wonderful human story and of um, interconnectedness, and um, mm-hmm. so now um, you mentioned the the um, the SMD uh, boarding school, um, and, mm-hmm. and that um, people can can look about look find out about that. Excuse me at HimalayanChildren.org. So can you tell us a little bit? Um, about that place and, and um, how people, if, if they if they want to become involved in some way, how they can. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'd encourage um, anyone to visit the website, HimalayanChildren.org. Um, they can learn more about the school, um, the children, you know, what's happening right now with COVID even. Um, you know, the, the school has been uh, 
been organizing a lot of food and, and clothing back up to the villages because all the kids have had to go back to the villages at once and, and the villages weren't prepared to have all the kids come back. So some of the places didn't have enough food and, and clothing for the, for the winter. So SMD has been helping a lot with that. Um, plus organizing, you know, um, remote learning sessions. So again, Chantal and I were able, for example, to, to work with uh, Carmen Pemba's parents to have them stay a little bit lower down in the settlement where they could have access to, uh, to internet <clears throat> so they can, they can get access to the online learning from SMD, and uh, and I've been <laughs> I've been tutoring them uh, as well, and so yeah, so it, it's uh, it, it's it's kind of interesting how um, things have changed over the last eight to nine years, uh, because initially when we went there in 2012, this would have been impossible to even have internet connection, mm -hmm. but. Um, but yeah, so if people visit the school, they can learn or visit the website. They can learn about the school and and everything that's going on there. Yeah, it's it's great. Um, now I, I know on your website that um, people can contact you or follow you through social media and on mm -hmm. Instagram, Facebook, mm -hmm. and YouTube, so they can join you there. Um, well, I, I just want to let you know I really love the story, Michael. It was it's again, mm -hmm. it, you know, I, I love true story. You know, uh, success stories and, and, and things that are that are very touching. And and, and uh, your book, The Story of Karma, is certainly one of those. Thank you so much, Robert. Yeah, no, I really appreciate you um, taking the time to have me on here. It's it's my pleasure, and um, and I'll be sure to follow you on all of that social media so we can keep in touch. Excellent. Yeah, we'll do. Great, thanks. Um, again, everyone, today my special guest has been Michael Shaw, and we've been talking about his new book, A Story of Karma, Finding Love and Truth in the Lost Valley of the Himalaya. And again, you can find out more by visiting his website, which is michaelshaw.com, and that's M-I-C-H-A-E-L-S-C-H-A-U-C-H.com. And also do go visit... Uh, the SMB website, HimalayanChildren.org, and, and see if there's a way that you can help out. So everyone, I want to thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show, and until we meet again. Thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Remember, our show is available as a free podcast from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. To follow our show, visit our homepage at byteradio.me and select the platform you use most. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ByteRadioMe. Until we meet again, remember to be a bright light by bringing inspiration to your world and to the lives of those you touch. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.